Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the series on Mormonism for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and I am thrilled to have this guest on the show. It's Dr. Scott C. Esplin, and he is a professor of religious education at Brigham Young University, and he has published this fantastic, and I was going to say it again, a fantastic new book called Return to the City of Joseph, Modern Mormonism's Contest for the Soul of Nauvoo. And I'm just so thrilled to have Scott on because I got to say, this book is interesting because oftentimes within Mormon studies, you're focusing on early Mormonism or Mormonism in the late 19th century or the early 20th century. Scott deals with a topic that is diving directly into mid 20th century, later 20th century, early 20th century. It covers a whole reign of topics. And it's not just the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He's dealing with other modern Mormonisms like the Community of Christ. And it's about the city of Nauvoo. It's just a fantastic book. It has a lot to do with American history in general. So, Scott, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Daniel. I look forward to visiting with you. I appreciate you highlighting my book. Oh, thank you. It's it was wonderful. I just I just can't praise it enough. It's fantastic. Oh, you're kind. It was a fun project. Yeah, it, it that's another thing. That's why I want to pick your brain about. It really did seem like a fun research project. And I'm sure you probably went out there several times to do this research. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. But before we get into that, could you just tell the public a little bit about yourself? Like, where do you teach? Where did you earn your PhD, etc.? Sure. Uh, I uh, teach at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. I'm a professor of church history and doctrine in religious education uh, at Brigham Young University. I earned my PhD also at Brigham Young University in educational history. Um, It was a degree called Educational Leadership and Foundations, where I focused on educational history. I did a study of late 19th and early 20th century Latter-day Saint education practices and uh, did my master's and PhDs at Brigham Young University and an undergraduate degree in Southern Utah Utah University in Cedar City, uh, Cedar City, Utah. Uh, So I, I teach there at BYU. I've been there since... 2006. 
I believe, and uh, and just love it there. I teach classes in religious education, church history, Latter Day Saint scripture, and uh, and and I'm lucky enough to be able to research on the side. Oh, awesome! So, how did you get interested in the history of Nauvoo? Like, how did this project get started? Okay, I uh, I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, I lived from my late elementary, junior high, and first several years of high school um, in Ohio. And so I grew up about two mile, two hours from Kirtland, Ohio, which for those who are unfamiliar with uh, Latter-day Saint history and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, Kirtland, Ohio was the headquarters of our faith uh, for uh, approximately seven years, uh, from 1831 to 1838. Uh, and uh, it uh, it uh, is an important uh, location in our history. It was the site of the first uh, Latter-day Saint temple and uh, and just a prominent location for a number of important events in our founding uh, story. And so I grew up two hours away from Kirtland and uh, and went there numerous times with my family, with uh, with youth groups, church groups, and others, um, touring the, the sites that are part of our historic uh, tradition. And then uh, living in the Midwest, but having family uh, in, in Utah, uh, we frequently crisscrossed the country uh, as a family. My my father was a religious educator for our for our church, and and uh, so as we would travel across the country to visit uh, family in the West, we would stop at Latter Day Saint uh, historic sites. And, and so, as a boy, I went to Nauvoo, Illinois, uh, which is also for those unfamiliar with our faith, a uh, a uh, a prominent site in our in our restoration history. Um, following our period in Ohio, um, the church headquarters relocated briefly to Missouri and then eventually to Illinois uh, from 1839 until 1846. And uh, it is in Illinois, in Nauvoo, Illinois, where our, our faith's founder, Joseph Smith, uh, was killed or in, killed in a neighboring town uh, called Carthage, Illinois, and where he's buried in Nauvoo. And, uh, and so I, as a boy, uh, as a teenager, went to all of these sites and and fell in love with them. I, I it's where I think I decided I wanted to be a a historian, where I decided I wanted to be a teacher of our history and a researcher of our history. So I, I grew up loving these places, uh, going to these places, and then was lucky enough to be able to make it a profession and uh, and teach and research about these places. So I, I guess my love for the sites and and Nauvoo goes back to. Some of my earliest memories are in uh, in Nauvoo, Illinois. Um, but uh, how the immediate project came about, I was a brand new faculty member in 2006 at Brigham Young University, and uh, I had a colleague. Uh, we had a, a faculty member who had taken a leave of absence uh, for a year or two on behalf of our faith uh, to go out and and uh, work in Nauvoo, Illinois as a public affairs director, a public affairs official, as they were reconstructing the, the famous Nauvoo Temple. Uh, the Nauvoo Temple was rebuilt uh, in, uh, in Nauvoo, Illinois, from 1999 to 2002. And uh, he was asked by our church to go back and, and assist with public affairs, relationships with the community, with other faith traditions in the area, while the temple was being rebuilt. And uh, after that was done, he came back to our faculty and... and uh, and then uh, R.J. Snow was his name, and uh, he was tragically uh, killed in a car accident or died from some injuries uh, subsequent to a car accident. 
and uh, we lost RJ and, and he was a, uh, he, he had just begun a project telling the story of faith relations and the rebuild of Nauvoo. And uh, I was a brand new faculty member and had some training and background in, in 20th century education or 20th century Latter-day Saint history. And so uh, his widow approached our college and approached our dean, and and they approached me and asked if I would be willing to to pick up the project. And, and so that began a, a a more formal study of these sites that I had grown up loving, and uh, a project emerged from there for more than ten years, uh, returning to Nauvoo, going to archives all across the country, interviewing participants, uh, just uh, falling in love with and learning more about the story of the restoration of Nauvoo and. And really, its impact on on uh, local uh, on, on the local community, uh, interactions with other faiths. And it started out being just a history of the of the restoration project, and it grew into much more than that. It, it grew into a social history of uh, of Nauvoo across the twentieth century. Wow, that's a great story. I mean, it's tragic, but it's great to know that you picked it up and that you did something so great with it. So. Well, and RJ, RJ was a good friend. He was a, a somewhat of a mentor during my doctoral studies. He had uh, he'd had some influence in educational history, and and uh, he was just a, a kind, gentle soul. And and uh, when when they asked if someone would take it on his behalf, I was happy to do it. He's he was a good yeah. good person. Well, you know, I I find I often find that that's what often makes books so good. It's when they're not just academic projects; they're personal passion projects. And for you, especially, it it had a very personal connection to it. So it definitely it definitely shows in the book the passion for it. So that's that's wonderful. It it eventually became a family project. I uh, because I spent so much time in Nauvoo. Uh, um, I eventually was able to incorporate my family in that. So it started. Uh, let me think. I think it even started before we had any children. My wife and I were newly married, and and uh, I, I, I've we now have four children, and our oldest is is uh, twelve, and and they've grown up uh, with me on this project. They've I've taken each of them back to Nauvoo. Our family has gone back to Nauvoo, and uh, they've experienced things at the sites. They've fallen in love with the place. I, I joke for those that have been to Nauvoo, uh, it, it's a it's a recreated 19th century a frontier town, uh, and it, and it, so it has kind of costumed participants, costumed actors or or, or interpreters uh, explaining various sites, uh, life in a, in a religious 19th century frontier religious river town, and and there are certainly sites that are are, are definitely religiously oriented, uh, but there's others that are are more. Um, 19th century life and, and so there's a there's a a, a shop where you learn, learn how to make bricks and there's a shop where you learn how to a bakery and and a and a, a blacksmith shop and a, and a, a period schoolhouse and i've joked i've been to nauvoo so many times uh when you go to the brick making place they give you a souvenir brick i think i've been enough times that i'm going to make my children a a a playhouse out of nauvoo souvenir brick <laughs> they love the place they they each have a pioneer bonnet or a coonskin cap or something that's a little costume thing from one of the souvenir shops in town. And, and they're happy to go back. They, they like it there. And, and we, uh, in some ways it was more than just a personal project. It became a familial project. And, and so my, my children, uh, love the place and, and, uh, and it's, it's been great to share that with them because that's in the end, in, in, that's what got me started in the beginning. 
was my parents sharing uh, the sites they loved, the, the places important to their faith. And, uh, and it sparked something in me that made me wanted to become a teacher and a researcher of those things. And, and, and maybe my own children are falling in love with now sites that are important to, to our faith history. Oh, that's wonderful. That's very cool. Yeah. And just to, to attest of how beautiful Nauvoo is, I've been there several times. It is everything you're saying I can personally attest to. It is a beautiful city. And just the cover of your book, it's, it's one of the best covers for a book I've ever seen. It is beautiful. It's this like pink sky in the background. It's just overlooking the Nauvoo Temple and the Mississippi River. It kind of really captures what the what the city kind of looks like, you know, as as you know, a uh, uh, as a like you know, dusk approaches. So really, really interesting. It's it's just a really interesting book. Yeah, that that was all the doing of the press. Uh, University of Illinois Press is the publisher. And uh, they were great to work with. I, I can't say enough good about uh, Dawn Durante and, and her team and others that uh, the University of Illinois Press, who 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 helped improve the project, improved my writing, improved my research, and and produced a stunning book. Very cool. So Scott, you've touched on it a little bit, but I guess wanted for for listeners who maybe aren't so familiar with Nauvoo, why is Nauvoo an important topic for 20th century Mormon history in general? Sure. Well, uh, it was the the final city of our fa- of our faith's founder Joseph Smith. So, uh, and and a number of the important teachings and doctrines and foundational elements of our faith emerged during this time period. So, our, our faith, for those unfamiliar with it, uh, was formed in in uh, Western New York. Uh, the church movement was started in in April of 1830 in Western New York. And progressed uh, through a variety of communities uh, into Ohio and then and Missouri and eventually Illinois, uh, where it was headquartered in in this in this uh, river town uh, on the bend of a Mississippi River, uh, on the bend of the Mississippi River uh, in western Illinois, uh, about an hour's drive north of modern day Quincy today, and uh, the faith was headquartered there for for six or seven very important but also turbulent years. Uh, Nauvoo was uh, was uh, a time of great great uh, growth and development for our, our faith founder, for uh, the church members generally. Um, it was a, a, a time of great flowering of, of doctrinal teachings and expansion and exploration and development of of theological practices and 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 ideas. Uh, but it was also a time of great controversy. Uh, it was an era in which conflict emerged, and, and so that's what. I came back to in the title for the book, um, Nauvoo was was a, a, a time of great excitement, but also a time of, of contestation. Uh, people were fighting over ideas, fighting over or, or future of the faith, and 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 there was pushback against this growing movement uh, during the the eighteen forties era. Nauvoo uh, was a, a major uh, city in Illinois one of the largest in the state, uh, some say rivaling nearly the size of Chicago at the time. And, uh, and yet today it's a, it's a map dot. It's, it's a small uh, city of less than a thousand people on, uh, in rural uh, Western New York or Western Illinois, sorry. But, uh, but for six or seven years, it was the center of our faith. And, and of course, as I mentioned, our, our faith's founder was killed in a, in a, in a, in a by a mob that attacked him while he was under a wet under arrest awaiting trial for a, uh, for an episode that had happened in the city 
And, uh, and that fractured our faith, uh, certainly shocked our members. And, uh, and so in some ways it's seared in the hearts and, and minds of Latter-day Saints, a fascination with Nauvoo. Um, I, I think I, I, teaching my students on campus, I, I try to point out to them that many of the things that, that the church practiced and, and developed in this critical Nauvoo era are still practiced today on a much larger scale. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so the faith moved, uh, or at least after uh, the death of, of Joseph Smith, um, some of the church members uh, moved to different places. So there was, as you know better than anyone, Daniel, uh, there was a fracturing of, of the movement. And, uh, and some went, uh, some went as, as I think your faith tradition has, uh, to the Pennsylvania area uh, near Pittsburgh. Um, my side of the faith tradition uh, followed a man by the name of Brigham Young, who is the namesake for my university, um, west to Utah to, uh, to settle Salt Lake City and, and the Rocky Mountains. Uh, another group, uh, an important one in my story, uh, remained generally in the area. Uh, the uh, widow of Joseph Smith, um, uh, his widow Emma Smith and their children, uh, remained behind in Nauvoo. And uh, their son, their oldest uh, surviving son, uh, Joseph Smith III, uh, helped form the, the uh, reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and now known as the Community of Christ, uh, in 1860, and, uh, and, and lived in Nauvoo uh, for, for many years as the faith's leader. So, uh, so there was a, a, a dispersion away from Nauvoo generally by Latter-day Saints, though some stayed behind. But I don't think anyone ever left the city behind. In their minds, certainly in my tradition out here in the West, in Utah, uh, people were still fascinated with Nauvoo and, and longed to return. Uh, there's a whole series of statements across the remainder of the 19th century. Uh, church leaders who, who predicted, described, hoped for, longed, wished uh, for a time when the church could return to Nauvoo. And, and so for the church generally, this is an important place because of some of the doctrinal developments that occurred there. Certainly important because it's the, the site of the, the burial place of our, our faith's founder. And uh, was the location of of our second temple, um, and and are, are arguably one of our most important temples. Uh, temples are an important theological element of our faith, and and uh, there was a massive temple built in in Nauvoo uh, during the Joseph Smith era, and and so a longing for that building, a longing for its 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 importance, a longing for our faith founder, a longing for a, a quiet or happier time. Um, all of those things caused people to remember Nauvoo, even though in, in many cases we were hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. And, uh, and, and so this book is the story of, of that return across the 20th century and, uh, and how the faith uh, in some ways, at least the Utah based branch of that faith fulfilled its longings to go back to Nauvoo. Wow. Yeah. And you know, that leads to my next question. This is really fascinating stuff, Scott. So in your book, you talk a lot about it. And I just thought for the listeners, if you could explain a little bit, why did the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints become more interested in preserving you know, its heritage of Nauvoo in the 20th century? Because like you said, they had moved out west. They took you know, the heritage of the, of the theology. And, and like you said, you could, argue, you could really argue that modern Mormonism really developed in Nauvoo. So they carried it with them, but they wanted to go back to the actual site. 
why did that happen and what basically moved them to do that? Uh, sure. I'm happy to, happy to address that. Uh, and, and I think I should be clear. Um, I, I, and, and you worded it so well. Uh, I think it is especially the Utah based branch of the church. As I mentioned, there's multiple um, uh, schisms of this, of this tradition, of this faith tradition. It's probably the Utah branch that, that um, was most closely aligned with, with some of the Nauvoo era teachings. Uh, but that Utah church, uh, the, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as, as we're called, um, headquartered in Salt Lake City, um, wasn't in a position to, to do anything with or develop or even acquire or even develop historic sites across the 19th century. Um, in our history, uh, coming here to Utah, and then there, there was a, a whole host of things uh, that caused tension, uh, largely with the, uh, the American government and, and, and the greater American people over some of our controversial Nauvoo teachings and practices. And, and so throughout the 19th century, there was um, uh, alienation, contest, a conflict over this Latter-day Saint movement. And, uh, and so we weren't in a position to come to the Midwest. We weren't in a position to do anything about, about uh, uh, any of these sites. We were simply uh, fighting for our survival. Um, much of that was put to bed in the early 20th century. So in the early 20th century, there was a, a, a thawing of relations. Um, Latter-day Saints, uh, the Utah-based uh, group, um, wanted to insert their, themselves into, into a more positive way into the, into the American narrative. And so we, we, we looked for ways to engage. Uh, we uh, became actively, actively involved in, in some of the nation's most important events, uh, serving in, 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 on behalf of the country in armed conflicts, uh, involving ourselves politically, uh, involving ourselves economically, um, involving ourselves educationally. So in the early 20th century, Latter-day Saints reversed course. And instead of retreating to the mountains by way of refuge, and, and they, they, they sought to extend themselves beyond the Rocky Mountains uh, back into the American narrative. And, uh, and at the same time, I, I think the, this is especially now moving into the, into the mid to later part of the 20th century. Um, I think the American narrative, the American, those who shape uh, the American narrative were more willing to embrace the Latter-day Saints story. Um, and, and I get into that in the book a little bit, but uh, in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, the National Park Service was interestingly involved in, in the restoration of Nauvoo. Uh, they saw in the Latter-day Saints story uh, a, a an example of westward expansion, an example mm-hmm. of a, a, a group who helped shape and form uh, the 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 expansion of of the we- expansion of the country west, and and so they in some ways held up the Latter-day Saints as this role model during a time period of of anti-Vietnam protests and counterculture movements and and kind of um, unrest and uneasiness nationwide. Um, the National Park Service looked for stories they could tell that would champion a, a, a simpler, happier time. And so they mm-hmm. found the Latter-day Saints. And, uh, and so this is a time period when Latter-day Saints become involved politically. Uh, we have uh, George Romney, who ran for president of the United States. Uh, we had uh, um, Willard Marriott, who, who was founding the Marriott Hotel chain. Uh, 
David Kennedy, who served as Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Ezra, Ezra Benson, Ezra Taft Benson, who served in, in Eisenhower as Secretary of the Agriculture. So in a number of these, those first three that I mentioned are actually all on, involved actively in the restoration of Nauvoo. So it, it became an important American story. The National Park Service got involved. But, but we, as a church, got, most, got, got involved starting in the early 20th century. We reversed this course and decided we were going to start acquiring sites. And, and interestingly, the first building, historic building, the church purchased from its earlier era was the Carthage Jail. Uh, the Carthage Jail was purchased in 1905 by our faith, and it was, it was the scene of Joseph Smith's death. And uh, it was acquired, and then quickly thereafter, they acquired other properties. Uh, in, in, for those who know our Latter-day Saint history, in places like Palmyra, Kirtland, uh, Liberty, Missouri, uh, Independence, Missouri, and, and other places. And, uh, and so during the 19-teens, 1920s, 1930s, and, and 40s, um, they started acquiring properties. And uh, and then our faith is a is a uh, well known for its proselytizing efforts for our, our missionaries and their um, their uh, their efforts to to share our message with others, and uh, and so we position we placed often missionaries or guides at each of these sites, hoping they could be used as a as a way to introduce the faith uh, to people who were uh, looking for stories of American history, looking for regional stories of of their areas. And so that, that kind of gets us into the, the 1950s, 1960s. Um, the church saw these sites as a way to engage in, in Americans largely who are uh, traveling the country. So after the end of World War II and, and, and the, the boom that, that occurred with, with the growth of the, highway, the federal highway system and, and um, the development of the great American vacation and, and the pastime of of making a summer trip somewhere, um, these sites just boomed uh, because people were looking for places to go and places where they could drive to and see and experience. And, and, uh, and so you had the National Park Service who was encouraging the development of Nauvoo. They brought in individuals who have some expertise as hotel developers or, or business entrepreneurs. And um, it just all came together in the 60s and 70s to become a, a major uh, project, uh, really for the nation. Uh, it was patterned after um, Colonial Williamsburg, which was developed at the same time period. Um, Colonial Williamsburg was developed uh, uh, during this era to celebrate American greatness and 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 the uh, the founding of the country, and, and that was a certainly an 18th century story. And uh, and Nauvoo was one that was chosen or tried to to hold up as a, as a 19th century repeat of Williamsburg story. Oh, awesome. Yeah. That was something I found interesting in the book as well, because the first time I had gone to Nauvoo, that was the first thought that came to me was like, this is like colonial Williamsburg for the 19th century, you know, (laughs) Westward expansion. It's really, or in, even in my area. So I'm in the Detroit area. We have this, uh, it's, 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 uh, it was founded by Henry Ford. It's called Greenfield village. And it, you know, it's got a lot of historic village, you know, historic buildings. And it, again, it reminds me very similar of, of historic Nauvoo and what the church has done to preserve it. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. And I, I would assume that village was probably built in the same time period. This was an era in which these things were flourishing uh, across the country and, and, and they were cross pollinating each other. So mm-hmm. in Nauvoo, uh, uh, again, originally, it, it, while it was purchased 
by some private individuals and then and, and actively involved by the church. Um, not everyone who was restoring or helping with rebuilding Nauvoo was, was a member of our faith. Uh, they brought in on the board uh, the chief architect from Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, they brought in other individuals who were actively involved in the Williamsburg project. And, and it was a, an, an attempt to, to try to kind of cross-pollinate uh, these projects. And, and certainly Williamsburg was, was, the, uh, was the prototype for many of these. It's, it's founded uh, by the Rockefeller family and, and, and has certainly a, a massive financial backing there. But uh, but Nauvoo and I and I think other places like like the one near you uh, were uh, were patterned after Williamsburg. There's there's more to be researched there on uh, on the role Williamsburg has played in in shaping uh, religious tourism or, or heritage tourism or or uh, historic villages. Um, that that the Rockefeller legacy uh, there is is an important one. Very cool. So another another part of the book I really enjoyed reading is there you know you 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 really have made the a very good argument why Nauvoo is not only important for Mormon history but American history in general but there's this tension in Nauvoo when the church comes in and what your book so beautifully brings out and they have this tension with another group that you had talked about called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or now what is referred to as the Community of Christ since they changed their name and you said, like you said, they had they were already, they already had a foothold in Nauvoo. So when when Brigham Young, you know, leads the Saints west from Nauvoo to Salt Lake City, you have a uh, a cohort of uh, of of people, like you said, uh, Joseph Smith's wife and uh, some members of his family. They stay back in Nauvoo in that area, and then that kind of starts the reorganized church. So when the LD or when when the LDS or the Utah Church returns back to Nauvoo and kind of starts to you know, embrace this heritage, there's a tension there that your book really highlights. And I thought, if you don't mind, could you talk to talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, and, and, and one thing I can say now is, uh, uh, one, one thing I should say is, uh, I'm grateful that tension is largely gone. Uh, for a visitor of Nauvoo today, um, I, I think uh, the two groups, the two prominent groups that are there of the restoration of the Latter-day Saint movement uh, get along fabulously. Um, they they share, they coordinate very well in activities. They participate well with each other, um, but that certainly wasn't always the case. So, a, as you mentioned, uh, the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints uh, was formed in in the Midwest in 1860 by uh, Joseph Smith's son and uh, and his widow and others who remained behind and didn't didn't relocate west with the Brigham Young movement. And, uh, and, and they retained ownership of some of the most important properties in Nauvoo. So, uh, the, the Smith family properties themselves. So they owned, uh, what's called today, the homestead, the Joseph Smith homestead. Uh, they owned the, uh, the mansion house. Uh, they owned what was called by them then the Riverside mansion, a project that was started in Joseph Smith's era known as the, the Nauvoo house. And then, and then importantly, they also owned, uh, or they own, uh, the, the burial site, the Smith family cemetery. So as the, the Utah based church, uh, returns in the early 20th century, they try to gobble up whatever other properties exist. Um, some of the first properties they buy in Nauvoo are, are the lots where the Nauvoo temple had once stood. The Nauvoo temple, uh, was, uh, 
originally uh, constructed in Nauvoo, but but destroyed by an arsonist, and then uh, later leveled by a tornado, and uh, and so the building no longer remained. But the community, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints from Utah, uh, quickly acquired the temple lot itself, starting in the 1930s, and uh, and so they acquired the, the the ground where the temple had stood. And then a number of the surviving uh, buildings, for those who have been to Nauvoo, they're familiar with this area that's called the Flats down near the river. And uh, they acquire uh, prominent home, homes that are from prominent church members, the Brigham Young home, uh, the John Taylor home, the Wilford Woodruff home. These are early Latter-day Saint church presidents. Um, other building structures that survived, uh, a building that was originally called the, uh, uh, the Masonic Hall or Masonic Lodge, now known as the Cultural Hall. They acquired that one and, and a number of other buildings, anything that was basically standing and for sale. And, uh, and that uh, understandably ruffled feathers. Uh, the, the community of Christ and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, had a, a tenuous relationship in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and I, I kind of compare it to uh, maybe siblings in a family. Uh, siblings in a family that might not get along so well during their teenage years. Um, they're both trying to feel their place in the world, find their place in the world and feel their way through, um, growing pains. And, uh, and, and so like a family sometimes has tension, uh, during those era ages. And then maybe as adults, children get along or, or siblings get along better than they may have ever gotten along as teenagers. I think some of the same things occurred with these two faith traditions. So there was certainly historical tension uh, over our differing practices, our differing views on on who should lead the movement, who should who is the successor to Joseph Smith, and and all of that um, played its way out in Nauvoo in in during this restoration project. So the Latter Day Saints from Utah come back, acquire the temple, start to spread rumors, or or it starts to be rumored that that they're going to rebuild the temple, that they're going to return in a major way, and the Smith family properties who were owned by the reorganized church, um, certainly felt differently. They felt like they were the, the heirs to the legacy of Joseph Smith and, uh, and to the memory of Nauvoo. And, and they had been there all of the years in between. And, and so tensions emerged in the 50s and 60s, largely over the acquisition of properties. It became almost a, a, a bidding war in Nauvoo. Um, and, and one faith would try to purchase a lot and block the other and and it, it just uh, it really escalated in the 60s and 70s, uh, almost a, a time period of, I joke in the book, it's almost a, anything you can do, we can build better uh, experience. And, and uh, one faith builds a, a, a million dollar visitor center and the other faith builds one as well. And one faith restores four or five homes and another faith, re, and the other faith rebuilds Joseph Smith's red brick store. And, and uh, it was just a, a back and forth in the 60s, 70s, and 80s over the memory of Joseph Smith and, and the memory of the movement and, and who would dominate in Nauvoo. And, and so there was, fi- not fighting, but, but there was certain tension over, over acquisition of properties and interpretation. And, and in, 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 in heritage studies and in, in history to a certain degree, um, the the person who controls the narrative um, can control the interpretation and mm-hmm. both sides wanted to control the narrative. And, uh, and gratefully that's largely gone now. Um, in the 1980s, late eighties, early nineties, uh, there was almost a pause placed on, on 
reconstruction projects. And, and, and at the same time, I think both faiths had, had grown up. They both became comfortable with who they were and the, and the directions they were going. And, uh, and that allowed for some, some thawing of tensions, some uh, improvement of feelings. Uh, This was led by church leaders on both sides who, uh, who started the sharing of documents, the sharing of important historical artifacts and documents, uh, and then eventually the sharing of sites. Uh, in, in Nauvoo, we, we are right on top of each other. There's, you know, because you've been there, there's a, you really don't even know when you've moved from Community of Christ properties into Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint properties. It's a, it's a seamless transition. And, and, I, and I love that. I, I love that they don't have fences. Uh, there were times when there was discussion of fences. There were there certainly are rival. There were rival billboards and rival interpretations, and and lots of stories of of guides probably on both sides uh, taking jabs at each other, and uh, and and trying to win visitors to their view and their interpretation. And and I, I, as I visit the sites today, I don't see any of that. Um, I, I think guides from both sides are are respectful of each other. Uh, certainly the leaders uh, on the ground at both sites are are respectful of each other and the church leaders are, are respectful of each other uh, they get along really well and uh, and that's been that's been great to see uh, because it, it wasn't always that way in the 20th century I don't know about you but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook that's why I subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two-minute meals factor meals are ready to eat in heat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed they're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off oh wow yeah your book i'm hoping is turned eventually into a documentary or something it's got movie making material all in it the tension and the reconciliation it's just a great story so but not only that not only with the tension with the two churches but um you you had mentioned also there's navu locals that aren't latter-day saints and there's there's the majority of Nauvoo in the 20th century, it really is a Latter-day Saint. Yeah. Very cool. So, so what, if you don't mind talking a little bit about that, you know, you throw them into the mix and how does, how does that story play out with them? Yeah. Well, what happened was uh, when, when the city was largely vacated of its Latter-day Saint uh, membership in, in the mid 1840s, the Smith family stayed behind, but there you're only talking a handful. You're talking Emma and, and her children, just this very, very small number. And you had all of these, uh, the city itself was between 10 and 15,000 people in the, in the surrounding community, surrounding area as well. And, and so you had lots of vacant homes, uh, developed farms, uh, this stately temple on a hill that was just left vacant. And, uh, and, 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 understandably in a growing America, that wasn't going to stay that way. 
So throughout the, the latter half of the 19th century, um, several different groups occupied Nauvoo. First, there was a, an interesting one, a French uh, communal society known as the Icarians. Uh, they heard about these vacant homes, the temple and others, uh, and they moved to the area and lived there for about a similar time period, seven, eight years, uh, about the same time period that the Latter-day Saints were headquartered there. And they tried to make it their their headquarters, their communal society. They, they fell apart um, during, due, due to some conflict with leadership and, and differing views on their tradition. But, but uh, a number of their followers stayed in Nauvoo. So there is a French element to Nauvoo, a French communal society that, that uh, still is an important part of the local story. Shortly after them, uh, this is true across other parts of the Midwest as well, there was a, a large immigration of German uh, settlers uh, that were uh, moving to, as farmers largely to the Midwest. Uh, they came as, as farmers, as, as uh, vinters, so they, they created the, the, the grape industry that exists still today in Nauvoo. There's a, a, a long-standing uh, uh, Baxter's uh, uh, winery that uh, that has been there for for decades in Nauvoo, and uh, and this this German element um, coupled with the French element um, has largely formed what Nauvoo became uh, in the early twentieth century. Nauvoo was uh, there are some accounts that say it was the most German speaking town in all of uh, Illinois. Um, you could attend worship services in the local uh, congregations there in German. Um, they spoke German in the schools, and so Nauvoo had a had a German town and flavor to it that still perpetuates in Nauvoo today. If you if you go to Nauvoo and, and you look at in a phone book or you look at some of the names of business owners or, or prominent citizens in town, you'll recognize uh, German last names. And uh, at the same time, Nauvoo religiously became heavily Catholic. Part of that was the German immigration. Part of that also was a, a Catholic school that was erected there. Um, a group of Catholic sisters known as the Sisters of St. Benedict um, set up a school there, uh, St. Mary's Academy, which operated for almost 100 years uh, in Nauvoo, uh, right across the street from where the, the Nauvoo Temple was located. They, they, they acquired some of the uh, vacated uh, modern-day St. buildings. They acquired some of the, the building materials that had been left behind from, from other buildings and, and develop, developed this, this uh, boarding school for, for Catholic girls. And, uh, and, and so in the 20th century, Nauvoo was, in addition to Latter-day Saints who were interested in this story, there were uh, French communalists. There's a, a story of German uh, immigrants in agriculture and, and the wine industry and the blue cheese industry that also developed in the area, um, a Catholic school. And, and so when the Latter-day Saints start to return, um, the residents of Nauvoo were, were generally welcoming. They, uh, they were excited about as, as many communities might be, they were excited about the prospects for economic development, uh, as, as one might imagine, potentially hundreds of thousands of visitors coming to your town every, every summer, um, certainly shopkeepers on Main Street and Mulholland and, and, uh, and uh, hotel owners and, and, and the gas station owners and restaurants uh, were, were excited. Um, but they were also nervous. Uh, and, and so while some benefited, Others saw that this was changing their town, that their town was becoming almost a, a uh, and I talk about this in the book, it was becoming a, 
uh, only known for the Latter-day Saint period. So most of these visitors only wanted to come and see Nauvoo as it was from 1839 to 1846. And, and the local residents found that, that people weren't as interested in, in the Icarian story, in the German story, in the Catholic boarding school story, in the story of rural Midwestern life. And, and so their town's identity was being, being taken away. And, uh, and, and, and so that caused tension. While some were benefiting economically, others felt like they were losing control of their hometown. Um, and, and that had some significant economic impacts on the community. Uh, property taxes go up, and and uh, as as property values escalate, and and sometimes people were unable to to purchase homes for their children, or children were unable to purchase homes in the town they grew up in, because they're now vying with outside buyers, with people who are trying to to turn Nauvoo into something else, and uh, and so that that caused some tensions that that I think sometimes still linger in Nauvoo today. Um, my book uh, quotes a a scholar of of uh, tourism studies. Uh, who who um, argues that that tourism is a devil's bargain, and uh, and and I love that imagery. I like that that idea because I'm writing about a religious project, and yet he uses a religious term that that tourism is a de- is a devil's bargain. Um, it brings with it certain elements beneficial to a community, but there's also elements that it brings that that. Change a uh, change a community for in ways that they didn't always envision, and and I think that's definitely happened in Nauvoo. Nauvoo, in some ways, becomes almost a a stage where a play is enacted. The Latter Day Saint story, the Latter Day Saint play, is enacted every summer um, from May until the end of August. Um, Nauvoo transforms itself into. 1840s Latter-day Saint Nauvoo. And then it shifts back. Um, right about Labor Day, um, it shifts back into being the local local town's people's Nauvoo. And it stays that way in the winter. And then every spring, it puts back on its Latter-day Saint clothing and becomes a pioneer Latter-day Saint town with, with costumed visitors walking up and down, costumed uh, interpreters in the homes. And, and I, I joked about it earlier, people like my own children Wearing pioneer bonnets and and coonskin caps, walking out, walking down um, Mulholland Street, the main town, main street in town, uh, and so it's it's just a fascinating way that this town navigates its identity throughout the year. Wow, this is brilliant stuff, Scott. Yeah, it just kind of goes to show you that we, you know, we often think of Nauvoo as a sacred space for the Utah Church, but as your book really points out, it was sacred space for several people. It is, and, and and you could imagine if if you're from a small town, and I I guess I lived in the in the Midwest. I lived in Ohio. After that, I moved out to Utah to a, a relatively smaller town, and uh, and you could imagine how you might feel if if your town was was suddenly taken over by a an outside group um, that came in with with money to buy buildings and restore it. How you might be excited about that, but then as your town's identity changes, how that might how that might challenge you. And, and so I think people who, who have watched this happen in their own towns can relate to the story of Nauvoo. And uh, we, we long for a past that, that uh, some ways we can't hold on to. And uh, people go back to Nauvoo hoping to recapture a past. And, uh, and, and there's this conflict over whose Nauvoo um, is the Nauvoo that should be told. Uh, 
a few years ago while I was doing this project, uh, the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. had a traveling exhibit. Uh, they had a traveling uh, uh, project that they would travel the nation telling um, local stories. And they developed an exhibit about Nauvoo um, that, that really explores this, this dynamic of whose Nauvoo should be celebrated. And it was just because they, they had the story that you and I are talking about, the Latter-day Saints story. But then they also talk, told the stories of the Icarians and the, and the German immigrants and the Catholic story. And, and, it, and it explored, the Smithsonian was exploring nationwide in, in stories like the one in Nauvoo, how we decide whose story gets told. And, and that's, that's, a, that's an ongoing question in, in I, I research now generally uh, heritage studies and tourism studies and, and pilgrimage and, and religious tourism. And, and uh, whose story gets told is, a, is an interesting one in that discipline. Wow. Yeah, these are heavy interactions that all these groups are, are dealing with in the 20th century and that is, is what you're talking about now. So how how did they start moving towards reconciliation? Because this is, like I was saying, this is heavy stuff. I mean, this is, and this is very personal stuff and people's feelings are getting hurt. There is, there is somewhat of a, a battle going on, but like you had said, it, you, nowadays you don't really see it. It's, th- things seem to be very friendly and very open. So how did, how did all these groups start moving in that trajectory? I think the first groups to move in that trajectory were the, were the, the churches and, and maybe that's a, a good thing. Um, I think the church is led out in this regard. Um, the, the, as I mentioned, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now Community of Christ, uh, those two faiths, I think, for, uh, first caused the reconciliation. Um, I, I wonder, to a certain degree, if, if, if that reconciliation really is complete with the local residents of Nauvoo. I, 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 I think on the surface level, there's the, there, groups get along really well, but every so often the tensions flare up again. Not not usually between Latter Day Saints, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and the Community of Christ, but sometimes with the community. Um, I mentioned that they rebuilt at the very beginning of our discussion. I mentioned we rebuilt the temple in Nauvoo, which was the biggest project in the restoration, a, a multi million dollar project, and. And this uh, elicited really interesting uh, responses by the community in the early 2000s. Um, feelings, uh, positive feelings about what it might do for their town, but also um, really strong worries about how it might forever change their town. And, uh, and, and some were willing to talk about it. Um, I've talked, I've, I've gotten to know people in town and, and uh, some open up to me. Others, I think, understandably, uh, I think they know that I'm from one of the faith traditions. And so I, I sometimes wonder, um, do I get one story told to me? And is there a different story that's percolating below the surface? Or, or what, what do local residents talk about when they know they're only talking to other local residents? And so, so in a place like the local cafe, um, when, when visitors aren't there, when someone like me isn't there, um, and I don't know. I, I, I think uh, I think many people in town are welcoming of of the tourism. This is also sadly the the story of of the death of rural America, um, and so rural towns like this, like Nauvoo, or uh, many of them are struggling economically. 
And uh, you drive in other places in, in Illinois, Western Illinois, or other places across the state, towns this size with with shuttered uh, businesses you know, on their main streets and and just difficult economic um, situations. And and so in some ways, Nauvoo has been dealt a, a really beneficial hand. And uh, but in other ways, it's changed their town. Uh, an interesting one, an example that I explore a little bit in, in some recent writing I've been doing, but but uh, the return of the temple and the the development of the city in the last seven or eight years um, has caused um, outside individuals to purchase um, property in town. So this isn't people; these aren't people purchasing property on behalf of the church. Um, this is these are people like like you see in other places that are developing vacation rentals. So uh, um, Airbnb or other things like that uh, that are that are buying up homes and and then renting them out in the summers or maybe coming and staying themselves for a few weeks and renting them out or whatever. Uh, but but that changes the makeup of a town when uh, when homes that used to be open occupied by families with young children are now occupied by by vacation rentals. Um, or maybe senior families, couples that are have moved there to to serve in in our in our building in our temple. Um, well, that changes the dynamic of a town when when young families no longer live in the town. And uh, the elementary school, for a variety of reasons, needed some major renovation, major reconstruction, or it was it was quite old. And and um, eventually they they had to shutter the elementary school and they've consolidated and moved in with the, the middle school and the junior high and a consolidation of schools with other towns because of the changing demographic of the community. Um, and, 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 and so what does that do to a town when, when uh, outside people, people from hundreds of miles, if not thousands of miles away, purchase properties and turn them into vacation homes or second residences or vacation rentals? And uh, how, what does that do to the soul of a town? And uh, that's where I get in the title of the book, this contest for the soul of Nauvoo. So I, I, I think the church is led out. And, and I, I do believe, back to where we started, my friend who was there uh, working with public affairs during the, during the rebuild of the temple, I think both faith traditions and, and local residents were trying to make the best of it. Uh, they're trying to... to uh, to to i think they all want the best for the town but uh but um i i do think there's there's room to grow room to go still i think there's uh areas for improvement um uh because of the ways that that tourism affects a town um so so it, it's tough to have a seasonal business to have a seasonal industry um, that really does well for three months and then is slow for nine months. And, and mm-hmm. so gas stations close in town, convenience stores close in town, the grocery store closes in town um, because it's just hard to make a go out of a business like that when you're only really operating in a three-month heyday. And so that that impacts local residents. And again, the local residents have been very kind to me. I, I have many good friends there. But, but I do wonder sometimes... Uh, are they as pleased with how this has turned out as, as those from outside the community are pleased to have it turn out? Wow. This is so interesting, Scott. I mean, your book, 
I, I have to say, your book is kind of like a reconciliation of all these tensions and all these discussions. And it's, it's beautiful how you've just been able to bring all these stories together to kind of tell this, what you were talking about, this very much untold story. I know you said the Smithsonian touched on it, but your book really dives deep into it to kind of give it this whole new life and beauty to it. And for all, if that, if this doesn't whet the appetites of the listeners, I just have to say this book won two major awards. It won the best book award from the John Whitmer Historical Association, which is kind of an outgrowth of the reorganized church or the community of Christ. And it also won the Harvey B. and Susan Easton Black Outstanding Publication Award for Academic Scholarship in Church History and Doctrine from Religious Education at Brigham Young University. So both sides, the Community of Christ and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, both historical groups on both sides acknowledge that this book tells a really good story and they 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 see great value in it. So everything you've been saying, Scott, has been absolutely fascinating. So I really appreciate you coming on to tell us this really interesting story or even just to give us a, sn- a little snippets of what your book is actually about. Well, thank you. I I, I made a lot of good friends in the project, uh, people from both sides, uh, um, people from my own faith tradition up in our, our church archives, uh, uh, those who from our faith tradition direct our historic sites, um, and then the archivists in the Community of Christ archives, uh, uh, they're just so generous. The, the site directors for Community of Christ there have become dear friends. Uh, residents in town have been uh, very generous with their perspectives, with their ideas, with their thoughts. And and, and, and again, this is their town, and, and I hope I was fair to them. I, my worry uh, and as, a, as a historian was, um, could I tell this story accurately, appropriately, faithfully? Um, but also be true to all the various sides. Uh, I, I, I certainly, of course, come from one of the traditions, um, and I'm and, and I'm employed by that same tradition. But uh, but I wanted to make sure that that I was fair to these other people who had also become dear friends of mine in the project. And I I was I'm grateful that that both sides seem to have found value in it. Um, I, I I do hope the local town feels value in it as well. Absolutely. So before I let you go, Scott, what are you working on now and what can we expect to learn from you in the near future? Oh, I, uh, I, I fall in love with the development of historic sites. So, uh, again, Nauvoo is a, is a fun one to tell the story of because it's, it's our, for a Latter-day Saint tradition, it's the most visited of our historic sites beyond our church headquarters and, and, and that's Salt Lake City. But, but, uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm exploring now other historic sites. I, I have an article coming out uh, early next year on uh, on uh, something called uh, dark tourism, which is the uh, um, places of uh, places of suffering, loss, death, tragedy, and I explore Carthage Jail, which is a, a community about twenty miles from Nauvoo, where where Joseph Smith was killed. I explore Carthage as a dark tourism site. Um, I'm looking now at, in, in other dark tourism sites. The whole genre isn't just a religious genre. genre. Dark tourism sites would be things like the 9-11 memorial, uh, Holocaust memorials. Uh, um, some of them are religious, some aren't. Uh, but but I'm, so I'm looking at dark tourism. I'm looking at tourism and religious studies and pilgrimage generally. Um, I, I'm intrigued with Kirtland. Again, this was the town that was two hours from my my hometown growing up. Um, I, I'd like to do a comparative study uh, between uh, Nauvoo, which is uh, 
a rural uh, religious tourism site, a pilgrimage site, and Kirtland or Palmyra, either of which are um, are uh, metropolitan, kind of suburban uh, religious tourism sites. And I'm intrigued um, from the point of view of local residents, uh, um, what similarities and what differences exist when when the town being developed is a rural one as opposed to a suburban one. Um, so Kirtland is a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, and Palmyra is a suburb of Rochester. Nauvoo really isn't a suburb of anywhere. Um, it's it's a good uh, it, it, it's not easy to get to, and and so when you develop pilgrimage in a in a place like that, uh, it certainly impacts the community more than it might in a in a bedroom community to a larger larger area like Cleveland. So I'm looking at other historic sites. Uh, I'm looking at uh, international religious tourism. Uh, uh, I, I'm fascinated with the concepts of contested sacred space, uh, Nauvoo being a place of contested sacred space. And uh, during the project, I was lucky enough to uh, to live and teach with my family um, in in Jerusalem, in, in the Holy Land. And that's obviously the kind of the, the crown jewel of contested sacred space. Mm. And so I'm intrigued on on at a large at larger scale and on, on, at bigger issues of contested sacred space among many religions, not just the the movements that have outgrown the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. So I think there's a lot to be done. Um, I think uh, visitors to our sites generally expect to be told what life was like there in the 1830s or 1840s, um, but rarely do they get told how the sites were developed in the 20th century and how the town feels about that development and 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 so how we've come back to all of these sites. Um, there's there's lots of stories to tell, and I and I look forward to doing that. Awesome. Well, Scott, definitely look forward to seeing those studies coming out from you. And just again, thank you so much for being on the show. Again, uh, Scott's wonderful book is called Return to the City of Joseph, Modern Mormonism's Contest for the Soul of Nauvoo. It's published by the University of Illinois Press, won two major awards. So it's definitely something you want to get. Scott, uh, thanks so much for being on. We really appreciate it. And I hope you have a great one. Thank you, Daniel. It's good to visit with you. Thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.